Hello, and welcome to the Laverne Church of Christ podcast, and thank you for joining us. You can find us at 244 Old Nashville Highway, Laverne, Tennessee, 37086. We hope that any time you are in the area, you will stop by and join us for worship. Our Sunday morning worship is at 9 a.m., with Bible classes following. Our Sunday evening worship is at 6 p.m., and we also have a Bible study on Wednesday at 7 p.m. The scripture reading this morning is going to come from the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. If you're following along in your pew Bible, that is on page 1039. Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Good morning, church. It's good to see everybody here today. So glad you're able to make it out to worship God on this Sunday morning. And greetings to those who are worshiping with us uh, virtually today via the internet as well. Uh, how pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. And uh, I continue to pray for this congregation that God will bless us to continue to be one body in every single meaning of that word, unified together in the Lord's truth, unified in the Lord's love, uh, bound uh, to each other uh, by the tie that binds. And uh, what a blessing it is to be here at the great church, to worship God, and to continue in the last series of this theme that we have been pursuing in the year of our Lord 2022. We just have a couple of weeks left in this series, in this theme uh, we have uh, been talking about Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. Oh, remembered something I was going to say before I got started. I uh, just wanted to say, uh, you know, a, a big congratulations to Dana and Murray, who's not in here, and also those who helped them on their team in putting together our float for the uh, parade, uh, which some of you saw last night. We watched it online. Uh, second place. The float got second place. So uh, just another wonderful way that this church has been represented to the, represented to the city of Laverne. Uh, that's good PR, man. It really is. Uh, and so uh, may that result in somebody deciding, I'm going to go check out Laverne Church of Christ. And who knows how family trees can be changed uh, eternally because of good efforts like that. I don't know everybody that was involved in putting the floats together, but whoever you were, well done, and I especially appreciate Dana and Murray for kind of heading that project up. So, well done. All right, now back to the sermon at hand. Ephesians 4, verses 4 through 6, our series is one. We're looking at the ones of true religion, the seven ones of true religion. There is one body. There is one spirit. Even as there is one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is above all and through all, and in all. Those are the seven ones of true religion from Ephesians 4, verses 4 through 6. And today we're talking about hope. And hope is one of the most important things that, uh, that we could possibly have in life. It is impossible to really have a life without hope. It is certainly impossible to be happy 
without hope. Hope is an essential ingredient of happiness. One of the first sermons that I ever preached, the first counting them on one hand, I don't know where it was in the first five, but one of the first sermons I ever preached was here in this congregation back somewhere in the late 90s, early 2000s. And it was entitled, Must Christians Always Be Happy? And it was a challenging study for me, especially as a young, up-and-coming preacher at the time, uh, wet behind the ears in so many ways. And uh, my Bible knowledge, of course, was growing, but wasn't what it is now. Uh, but I did this, this study because someone asked me a question about that. Uh, about, well, I mean, should Christians always, do Christians always have to be happy? Well, I'm not going to preach that whole sermon for you today, except that what I found in studying that subject was that hope, hope is the most important ingredient to happiness in this life. Hope is the light at the end of the tunnel. Hope is a reasonable expectation of a good outcome. Hope is, is knowing that good things can come in the future, maybe even that the best is yet to come. And, and that kind of knowledge enables you to have the positivity that you need to be joyful and happy in the present. It enables you to have the strength of character that you need to make it through the dark valleys of life that we sometimes find ourselves going through. Because if you're going through a dark valley in life and you can't see a light at the end of the tunnel, in other words, you don't have hope, a realistic expectation that this too shall pass, that better things are going to come, it can destroy you. It can destroy you. What destroys so many people in our world today is that they don't have hope. They don't think that things can get better. They get bogged down in the valley of the shadow of death. And they become overcome with the fear of evil and they're destroyed morally, psychologically. They're just destroyed by Satan because they have no hope. But if you have hope, the reasonable expectation that this too shall pass, that better days are ahead, that the best is yet to come. And brothers and sisters, I say this boldly understanding, having walked through some dark valleys myself in life, and having as a minister walked through hand in hand with many of my brothers and sisters in Christ over the years through worse dark valleys than I've ever experienced, I can tell you this is absolutely true. And that is if you continue in Christian hope, and if you allow that to be something that is deep-seated in your heart and your mind, you can endure anything and come through the other side victorious and joyful and happy and better off than you were before. And well, I just tell you, that's a great blessing. I think you can already realize. Hope is one of the three greatest virtues listed there in the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, 13. Now abide these three, faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love, but hope is nevertheless in that list. In uh, Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 19, that famous passage tells us that hope is the anchor of our souls. And so hope itself is what anchors us in the right place. It keeps us from drifting out to sea spiritually or morally, losing our moorings, losing our minds spiritually speaking. Hope is that anchor that keeps us where we're supposed to be. And that's why Peter says in 1 Peter 1 verse 13 that we are to fix our minds fully upon that hope. In other words, in all circumstances in life, we are to be keeping this hope in the forefront of our thoughts. It is to motivate us. It is to remind us. It is to encourage us. It is to become, well, I guess you might say the fuel that enables our spiritual engines to continue to run day after day after day. We need to keep our mind focused on the hope that has been revealed to us. 
In Genesis chapter 3, we have uh, the passage that tells us why we need hope to begin with. Uh, you see, we all have a very serious problem in this life. Uh, everybody in the world does. Everybody that has ever lived in this world has got the same problem, the same condition that plagues them. And we just need to face it head on and understand the realities of life. And of course, we skip forward there in chapter 3 to verse 17 where God is speaking to Adam. It is uh, uh, the second most significant part of this passage. I'm not going to tell you what the first is. You can figure that out on your own. But Genesis chapter 3 verse 17, beginning God speaking to Adam says, Because you have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. That's rough. That really is rough. Behold the goodness and severity of the Lord. Romans 11 demonstrated in Genesis 3. The goodness is the most important part of the chapter, which again, I'm not going to give it away. Study it if you don't already know. The severity here is laced with goodness. But there's the problem. And it's not just about thorns and thistles. That's, this is not, God is not in Genesis 3 giving us a catalog of all of the effects of the curse. Just a representative of them. So what he says to Adam specifically in Genesis 3 represents the, the outcome of sin entering into this world, the fall of humanity into sin, and thus our world being cursed because of our sin. Everything bad in this life is a result of the fall. It's an application of what God said to the serpent and to Eve and to Adam in Genesis chapter 3. Everything is a result of that. And ultimately it's all about death. Because what's the worry of a car crash if you can't die? You know, if you can't be maimed for life. What's the problem with disease if it can't lastingly hurt you? Does that make sense? What's the problem with disease if it can't kill you? But if it can kill you, then we have a serious enemy on our hands, a serious problem that we face. What about our fellow man, the strife that sometimes arises between brother and brother and sister and sister and so on? Well, what is there to fear about my fellow man and what he may think about me or what he might do if he can do no lasting harm to me? But if my fellow man can harm me, ultimately if my fellow man can take my life, well then fear enters into our relationships and mistrust and distance and all of the things that come from that. Is this making sense? Everything wrong with our world is a result of sin and ultimately points to the reality of death, which is our one great enemy in this life. Everything that we do as mortal men and women is taking one more breath in the direction of, one more blink of the eye in the direction of, one more step in the direction that leads to the grave. Brothers and sisters, I'm not mincing words about it. Every step we take in life is a step closer to death. And that is our mortal reality. And you're not a wise man if you deny that. You're not a wise woman if you push that down and say, I'm not going to think about that. 
And, and that's kind of the normal state of existence for so many people. They, they realize that mortality is a thing and they know that they're going to die someday and everybody's going to the death rate is 100%. They get all of that and they like to joke about it. But when it comes to actually thinking about it, oh, no, 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 I'm going to press that down. I'm going to push that away. Get that out of my thoughts. Get, get me entertained. Keep me distracted. I don't want to think about that. But brothers and sisters, I want to tell you that wise men and women do not forget the fact of their own mortality. You need to think about it. You need to absolutely think about it. You need to process it, meditate upon it, understand it, and you need to chart the course of your life according to the fact of it. And if there is no hope, well, what's the point of anything? Paul said, the dead be not raised. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Brothers and sisters, you know that this sermon today is about hope. We're in desperate need of it. Every single man, woman, and child on the planet is in deep and desperate need of hope. And our passage today tells us that there is hope. There is one body and one spirit. We've talked about the body. We've talked about the spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. In Christ, there is, in fact, hope. But we want to ask the question this morning, what is this one hope? What is our only hope because we need to understand it and our neighbors that are trying to forget about the reality of, of suffering and of death that bad things can and will happen to not just good people but bad things can and will happen to all people ultimately uh, appreciate the uh, uh, prayer uh, earlier t today you know the fact that God has been so good to all of us even uh, even the bad things are something that we can be thankful for because of the way God has providentially used those uh, things in our lives. And I appreciated that prayer. That's a very good thing, uh, a very good way to look at things, a positive way to look at things. And so, you know, we, we need to know what our hope is so that we can share that with our neighbors, folks that may be suppressing their fear of death. We need to be talking about that, explaining to them why they can let go of their fears in Christ if they only will. So let's think about that just for a minute. In order to do that, I want to get back in the context of Ephesians a little bit. Everything in the book of Ephesians, we've been focusing on Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. Everything in Ephesians flows from the initial long run-on sentence, or maybe a couple of run-on sentences, depending upon how you, know, you translate it or render it, uh, in chapter 1 and the first part of chapter 2 of Ephesians. I've always loved run-on sentences. And I'm sure that shocks you. But in my school years, you know, in writing for my English classes and liter literature classes, that's one of the things that it took me a long time uh, to learn not to do. And I, I have learned not to do it in my writing. Maybe not necessarily in speaking, but in writing, I don't do run-on sentences anymore. But for years and years and years, I, I have whole paragraph, just one sentence, you know, a long paragraph sometimes, one sentence, because of how I wanted to articulate a thought really, really fully and in great detail. And, man, am I ever in good company. So I was right all along is what I, the conclusion that I'm coming to when I think about the way Paul writes, all right? I, I can't get into it in great detail, but I can tell you, study Ephesians 1, the first part of Ephesians 2, and look at how long Paul's sentences are. And just think about that in your studies, okay? But let's look at Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. Listen to this, okay? Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints... Do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, 
that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. Verse 18, this is a key to interpreting this whole letter. Verse 18, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. Think about those words because that's a Bible way of saying something that we probably wouldn't say around the water cooler. All right? That the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, in other words, that your mind might be opened to understand. That's what Paul means. That you may know what is the hope of his calling. Paul's writing to Christians and he's saying, it's so important that you know what your hope is. What is the hope of his calling? What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Verse 21. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. I love the little just inklings of foreshadowing we have in the first two chapters of Ephesians as Paul just, man, he just opens back the curtain on eternity, just, just a crack, just enough to fill the studious mind with wonder about what God has in store for us in the age to come. Jesus' name is above all. doesn't matter who it is in history. Every one of those figures in history that have a, a name, comma, the great, Jesus is greater than all of them. Every person in the world today that has political power, look at the Forbes list of the top, you know, 10 wealthiest people in the world. Jesus is richer than all of them. He's greater than all of them. He has more glory than all of them, more power than all of them. Not only is that the case, but there are going to be quite a number of us, few compared to those who are not, but quite a number of us in the age of come that will be exalted to positions of very, very great glory. And Paul tells us here that Jesus' name is even going to be above all of us and all of them. And he put all things, the Father put all things under his, the Son's feet, and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. You see, as we read the, these concluding thoughts of Ephesians chapter 1, we already see, you know, kind of the ground laid here in the first chapter of the book that Paul is, is tilling again and sowing in again and reaping again in Ephesians chapter 4, because we're talking about the body, we're talking about the spirit. But you need to remember as you read the books of the Bible that when Paul wrote this letter, he didn't divide it into chapters and verses. It was just one letter, one scroll. And so sometimes we think the thought is complete here at the end of Ephesians chapter 1. It's not. You know, Paul has said in this prayer, in this, in this long sentence, in this, in, in this opening sort of paragraph about what he's talking about to the church at Ephesus, he's saying, I want you to know something that's really important. He's saying, I want the, the eyes of your understanding to be enlightened. I want your minds to be opened up. I want you to understand what your hope is. And he hasn't really answered the question yet by the end of chapter 1. Oh, he's foreshadowed a couple of places. But the answer doesn't really come until what we now call chapter 2. But it was just a part of the original ongoing context. So let's go over into chapter 2 and keep reading. And you, Christians, he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. In other words, the devil or Satan. 
Verse 3, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, <laughs> I'm sure I've brought that, you know, to the fore before in my sermons, but I just love those two words in the midst of this context in Ephesians 2, but God, but God. We made a mess of everything. Back to Genesis 3, we made a mess of ourselves. And it's not just the whole of the human race, but brothers and sisters in this room, we each who have come to an age of accountability have made a mess of ourselves and of our lives because we followed the prince of the power of the air, the devil. But God, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The already but not yet principle. We're not there yet in, in body, but we're there in spirit. And Jesus is already there in body and spirit, seated at the right hand of the Father. And that is a promise to us that that's where we belong and where we will be. There's our hope beginning to be enlightened, beginning to have the light shined on it here in chapter 2. Verse 7, that in the ages to come, again, the curtain just cracked. What does this mean? I don't know exactly, but I have spent a lot of time imagining about it. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That's what God wants to do. Eternity will be not just one long age, but an endless age of ages. And in those ages... God the Father's purpose toward us is to continually, not once, but continually do more and more deeds of kindness to us forever. Life and the glory that is to come will never get stale, never get old, never get boring. God's mind is infinite. His imagination is infinite. He has an infinite list of deeds of kindness that he wants to do toward us forever. That, brothers and sisters, is our hope. And it is so great a hope that no darkness that the enemy can conceive of can overshadow it or block it out. If you know this hope, and if it is yours, even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil. There is a very bright light indeed at the end of this life's tunnel. A very bright light indeed. And you know what? That's not the end. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourself, that is the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. Brothers and sisters, our hope is a promise. A promise of a gift that God has promised to make ours because he wants to, because of his grace, because he loves us, not because we deserve it, because we don't. Every one of us in this room deserves to die. Every one of us deserves to be hopeless. But God loves us too much for that, brothers and sisters. He loves us too much for that.
and therefore he has given us hope. I want to draw your attention to something very important in this context, in the whole of the book of Ephesians, but uh, especially here in chapter 1, we've read verse 18, the hope to which he has called you. I've underlined that, to which he has called you. And of course, our main text in the series is Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, one hope that belongs to your call. Do you see the parallel there? You know, Paul's epistles, if you will learn to read Paul in a systematic sort of way, understanding that in the opening sections of all Paul's letters, he gives you the foundation of everything he's going to develop later on in the letter. And by, by really grasping the intro sequence in one of Paul's letters, really internalizing that and meditating, praying over it, thinking about it, taking note of every single word, then as you read through Paul's letters, you'll find those statements repeated or rearranged in different ways as Paul then just continues to shine light on the truth and make it more clear and more apparent to us. You see, there is a connection between hope and between the calling. And those, th that connection is unbreakable. There is no access into the hope in which we stand without the call of the gospel. There is no access into any hope at all aside from obeying the gospel. The folks that are outside of covenant relationship with Jesus have no hope in the world and they are absolutely without God. Ephesians 2 says so. But those who are in Christ who have heard the call of the gospel and who have answered that call in obedient faith are in Jesus, in covenant relationship, and live in hope. And as long as you will keep the faith, nobody, not even the old devil, can take that hope away from you. That's the peace that passes understanding, the blessing that it is to be in Christ Jesus. So I want us to think about the call. Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, one of the most beloved passages where Jesus gives the call of the gospel, so to speak. He says, come to me. Brothers and sisters, that's what Jesus is still doing today. He's saying, come to me. And that's what the world needs to hear. And many Christians are afraid to share their faith because you think it, it's really about a knowledge game. It's about beating people at, at the knowledge game. And, and we get this idea that folks out in the world have just got a list of a thousand, you know, just incisive, hard questions that they're going to put us to, to the test with to see whether or not we really know our stuff. As if Christianity is primarily about knowing our stuff. Listen, this may be strange to hear, but I want you to understand, brothers and sisters, Christianity is not primarily about knowing a bunch of stuff. Knowledge puffs up, Paul says, but love builds up. Yes, there are some things that you've got to know. And yes, Paul, in this prayer that we've read together, says he wants us to know. But he's talking to Christians who he is under the impression didn't know. You, you, you putting two and two together there? They were Christians before they had a full understanding of the hope to which they'd been called. It's not your understanding, your, your biblical genius that makes you right with God. It is the grace of God that makes you right with God Amen. through faith in Jesus Christ. And so Jesus is reaching out to the world and saying, come to me. You're talking to someone at work. And they're talking about what they've been going through, their marriage or 
work troubles and kids or just whatever's going on, parent that they're taking care of, disease they're struggling with, whatever's going on in life. You know, in that kind of a situation, that, those are some of the best opportunities to try to reach people with the call of the gospel. And those are not opportunities for you to give a dissertation on the doctrine of sanctification. Those are opportunities for you to share the love that the Lord has given to you, put your arm around somebody, say a prayer with somebody, and to say, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Let him love you. Let him show you that he's already won your deliverance. The way has been paved for you. He has done it. Just come to him. Let him teach you. He says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your soul. See, that's his promise of hope. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Mark 16, 15 and 16, the Great Commission is about sending this call out into the world. And he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel. What does that mean? Jesus, the Son of God, lived a perfect life. He died for your sins. He was buried. And by the power of God, he rose from the dead bodily on the third day, never to die again. And by faith in Jesus and obedience to that gospel, you can be a partaker of the same blessing. He is now a partaker, conquering death, living forever in glory at the right hand of God in the heavenly places. Man, what a blessing that is. That's the gospel message. And we're giving the call for people to respond, to come to Jesus. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. But whoever does not believe will be condemned. You see, the hope is connected to the call, and they cannot be separated. And we see this principle borne out, and, and, and we understand its truth when the Bible teaches us about Judgment Day. We read in Matthew 25, beginning in verse 31, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him, think about this, brothers and sisters. I used to have nightmares about Judgment Day when I was a kid. You know that? Nightmares. Now... With the eyes of my understanding enlightened so that I know the hope to which he's called me, I dream of the day. I long for it. Come, Lord Jesus. But if you have not received the hope that is in Christ through covenant relationship with him, you should be having nightmares about judgment day. Well, that's not happy, uplifting 21st century preaching, is it? Telling the church they ought to be having nightmares. No, no, no. I'm not telling the church you should be having nightmares. I'm telling folks that are not following Jesus, you ought to be terrified of Judgment Day. Now listen. Then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations. And he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep, separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Skipping down the passage now to verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. If you look at the whole context of Matthew 25, you will see that those who are in his right hand, the sheep, are those who have heard the gospel call and lived a faithful Christian life. 
Those are on the left or those, whether they've heard the call or not, have not responded in obedient faith. And that is the dividing line between all human beings who have ever lived or will live. That is the one dividing line. Have you heard the call and answered it in obedience or not? That is the one question that matters more than any other question in this life. It's the only question that matters with regard to your eternal destiny. And so we come back to hope. One of the three great virtues that abides throughout this age. The only thing that makes love greater is that it keeps on abiding into eternity when our hope has been fully realized. It is the anchor of our souls. And we must cling to it. We need to keep our minds on this hope of heavenly glory, of resurrection from the dead, of the defeat of death, of being reunited with all of our loved ones in faith who've gone on before us. Most importantly, seeing Jesus in his glory looking down at our resurrected selves and seeing we're like him. Immortal, powerful, untouchable, secure, loved, anticipating the endless ages of God's kindness and wondering what will that beautiful God do next? Man, that, that's our hope, brothers and sisters. And I just really don't know why there's anyone who wouldn't want to hear about that and wouldn't want to embrace that and wouldn't want that to be just the central thing in their lives. So in summary today, just thinking about these passages that we've looked at, we need to recognize that the one and only hope that exists in this world for any and all people of any and all race or tribe or tongue or nationality, socioeconomic level, it doesn't matter where they're born, where they come from or what they think, there is one hope, one and only hope. It is the exclusive hope and it is to be found in Jesus and in him alone. It can be found in no one else. Muhammad offers the world no hope. Buddha offers the world no hope. None of the pagan false gods offer the world any hope. There is no hope in Scientology. There's no hope in humanism. Atheism has no hope. There's nothing but the grave and the second death beyond it for anyone outside of covenant relationship in Jesus Christ. Hope is exclusive. And hope is humbling. As Paul has explained to us what our hope is in Ephesians chapter 2, he summarizes that context by saying, God gave it to you by grace. You didn't earn it and you cannot earn it. It was given to you, so humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. It is a comprehensive hope. The hope that God offers is not just a hope to float off disembodied spiritually into the heavens somewhere and to say, oh, well, well, I'm dead and that body's dead and whatever, but I'm going to be in just kind of this ghost forever. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches a comprehensive hope. Everything about you has been redeemed by Jesus and will be saved. When we plant that dead body in the ground someday or spread your ashes, however it is that you choose to do, on resurrection day, God will put them back together into a living body that will be better than this one that you ever imagined it could be. Everything about you is going to be saved. It's a comprehensive hope. It is an eternal hope. Remember Matthew 25. When Jesus pronounces that final judgment, 
It's eternal in nature. Those who are outside are outside forever. Those who are in will never be cast out again. But it's not just exclusive, humbling, comprehensive, and eternal. It's unifying. Brothers and sisters, we all share the same hope. And that's part of the purpose of Ephesians 4 and teaching us that this is one of the seven ones of true religion. Our shared hope binds us together. And we need to celebrate it together. And so many people think of this season, this Christmas season, the holiday season as, as the season of hope. You can put about any virtue in that statement and people will say at this time of year, it's the season of hope, the season of charity, the season of love, etc., etc. And I just want to say they're right, but I don't mean just the Christmas season. This is the season of hope and by that I mean the whole era since Christ walked forth from the tomb has been the season of hope and it continues to be the season of hope today whether it's the Christmas season or not, but since it is, I want to just draw your attention to my favorite hymn in the whole world that is sung as a Christmas carol this time of year. And its message is so powerful, I can't hear it without being brought to tears. Oh, holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of our dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth notice this line I love it so much a thrill of hope how thrilling is our hope to think about a thrill of hope the weary world rejoices for yonder that's the hope see the light at the end of the tunnel for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. And when we realize that, when the eyes of our understanding are enlightened to that, then yeah, we're going to fall on our knees and we're going to worship God. Until our Lord came to this world, hope was only a dream. But now for those who are in Christ, Everything really is okay. Brothers and sisters, everything really is okay. And everything really is going to be okay. Both now and forever. But I just have a question for you this morning. Have you obeyed the gospel? If you're old enough that you know you're accountable for your own sins and you haven't obeyed the gospel, then you do not have hope today. And you need to remedy that situation. Have you confessed the name of Christ? Based on the decision to turn from sin and give him your life, have you been baptized for the forgiveness of your sins? If you have not, do it now. Take hold of hope. This morning, if you are a baptized believer, you're living in hope, man, you are. But if you're having a hard time seeing the light at the end of the tunnel, or if you need prayer for whatever other reason, the front pews are open. Come as we stand and sing. Thank you for listening to this message from God's Word. If you have any questions, please email them to us at office at org. Once again, we thank you for listening, and we hope you have a blessed day.